2: I am not a massive proponent of transparency and consent uh, as a fundamental way to control privacy or data management.
1: Transparency on data protection and privacy and consent sometimes can be a bit of a chimera because it's almost impossible for consumers to take active control of their data and of privacy because it's just, we're just engaging with the digital world so much
2: misinformation is actually part and parcel of
0: how a state behaves at times. China, Russia, plenty of countries prefer this idea of cyber sovereignty, of these digital walled gardens of control. We're
2: going to feel very uncomfortable as a society because we are going
0: to feel like we're constantly
2: under attack. And In theory, that's true, but we need to be careful how we're defining attack
0: countries that are sponsors of these types of attacks might think twice because they might not only openly open themselves up for having their troll farms shut down, um, but also potentially up to and including missile strikes. The, the use of cyber and kinetic together, whether it was in Georgia, whether it was in um, Ukraine or what's happening now in Israel and with Hamas, I mean, this just, I think just this just shows the future. So we have to prepare for it now.
1: G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Now, in this episode, we're... Very lucky to be joined by three incredible experts from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University, part of a cybersecurity and democracy delegation visiting the ANU Cyber Institute and the National Security College this week. So we're joined by Associate Professor Scott Shackelford, also the Cybersecurity Program Chair at Indiana University, uh, as well as Associate Professor Angie Raymond and Assistant Professor Abby Stemler. Now, I've never had so many lawyers in such a small room, so I'm very excited, uh, and welcome to the National
0: Security Podcast. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having us.
1: (laughs) Now, it occurs to me all of you have backgrounds in law and digital kind of economy. Now, only three to five years ago, talking about these subjects would have been kind of a black letter law or an economic exercise, but increasingly, it's being very securitized, this space. So why what has changed in the last kind of little while that, that's meant that national security is now the topic uh, that everyone cares about when speaking about digital uh, economy and the technologies that underpin it?
0: You know, it's funny. Over these last few years, you've seen cyber threats and cybersecurity slowly go up the rank in terms of the biggest priorities of, for example, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security or the FBI. But, you know, gone are the days when this was uh, a threat that you could consider in isolation, right? Um, Increasingly, this is just part and parcel of a whole range of security threats facing Australia, facing the Indo-Pacific, and facing the U.S., right? So when you think about election security, for example, cyber is one component among many So that's why at IU, for example, we've tried to take a really multidisciplinary approach to this, to think about not only the technical aspects, the legal aspects, but also the business aspects um, to try to get a better handle on this really multifaceted problem.
1: It's also interesting that, you know, you're bringing in democracy as well, which is kind of a big existential question. It's not just security. It's also the, the stakes of our democracy. But one thing that struck me over the last couple of days of conversations we've been having is democracy doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. So I think Bertrand Russell said once that the US and the UK were two countries divided by a common language. And in some sense, Australia and the US are two countries divided by a shared uh, government system. What struck you as different about democracy here in Australia and democracy
2: in the US? I think one of the biggest things, and so it's important for us to start with this as an ongoing conversation that we've had. So, all three of us have been fortunate to benefit from ongoing conversations with various institutions in Australia. And so, I think the dawning moment uh, for me was the Australian citizenry, either through compulsion or commitment to who they are as a citizenry, um, view democracy as a as a social commitment. And I would argue that we are either losing that or have never had it in the United States quite possibly. and And so, we see voting... Numbers drastically lower than Australia, and so I find that to be one of the key the key issues when we talk about democracy. Is we hold tight to this idea of democracy, but they are actually substantially different between the two countries, and the citizens' commitment to the ideal of democracy. Um, it, it takes a very different conversation between the two countries
0: there does seem to be a lot more trust in institutions and the government and the government's role in bettering the lives of ordinary people. It, it takes me back in some ways to the Great Society program, you know, late 60s. I, so I wouldn't go so far, at least from my own viewpoint, as to say, it's never existed um, in the U.S., but it's been a while. And our current mood for sure is, is a long way from government being here to solve problems. Mm-hmm.
3: And I would say, too, that um, one commonality that – both what all democracies share is the idea of um, thoughtful deliberation before decisions are made, um, either by having a representative government or just public discourse. And that is the common threat we see today in terms of misinformation and the use of. You know, uh, dig- digital platforms to communicate broadly to a wide variety of people that can come, that can be fueled by data and uh, f- facts that aren't actually facts. Um, and so that is the big challenge that we see both. I guess, all countries that are trying to have an informed citizenry. (laughs) I just want to take you up on that, Abby, because
1: I know you've written a lot about kind of digital platforms and the the risk to deliberative democracy. We spend a lot of time in national security circles looking for the outside threat, the authoritarian regime wanting to game our democracy. But you've written a lot about the inside threat, new, new ways of power corrupting democracy from within. Uh, why is this such an important issue at the moment?
3: I think it's an incredibly important issue to think about how our um, kind of monopolies our digital platforms Facebook um, you know YouTube to a degree, um, which is owned by Google so we see these platforms have incredible capabilities that you know government and I think normal people don 't quite understand so it 's the kind of Unlimited potential to influence. And fortunately, though I'm not quite sure, our um, industry, our companies, especially those that originate in the United States, um, try to not be evil, um, so to speak, though uh, Google has changed that slogan. <laughs> um, and so we are just kind do, of... Did they change it to something else? Like, don't I, be very evil?
1: It, <laughs> or exactly. they just kind of retrenched it and they don't have a slogan now? I, I, I don't think they have... They have
3: not a, replaced they it. To they don't, th- they yeah. don't think it's they just have replaced it, but it's they okay. like, have um, revoked by. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the capability for doing bad things is there. And so when we see countries, uh, we see, you know, state-owned enterprises or state or collaborative enterprises, so I think of China, um, you have the potential to really control populations. You also have the potential to um, allow other actors to influence. So if we don't have a solid gatekeeping function among um, kind of the participants on these platforms, which is completely controlled by the platforms, then we really are setting ourselves up for... um, failure because, you know, while we want to assume the best in all people, we know from history that that is an unlikely, um, you know, ideal. I guess that brings me back to the
1: character of our respective democracies. If our listeners haven't read it, Rebecca Huntley has written an excellent quarterly essay on what Australian values and the Australian democratic system means these days. And one of the points she raises, and other people have made this too, is that Aussies are a bit more comfortable with government regulation and government intervention if we're broadly comfortable that it's You know, it's fair and it's for the better of the country. And that's a bit different to the American approach to regulation, particularly for the tech sector and for innovation. Do you see, now that there's a collision of of economic factors, but also these national security factors and and kind of the protection of democracy, will America change here? Are we seeing a shift?
0: Mm -hmm. I think we are already changing, Um, especially at the state level.
3: I would agree to an extent. Um, one of the constraints of American government intervention is, of course, our Constitution. So, um, we think about First Amendment protections, which, um, very much influence what can, what we can do. Um, so we think about gun control, for example. We are constrained by a constitutional amendment or the interpretation yeah. <laughs> of the Constitution, uh, that really prevents us from Kind of acting in our own best interest. You
1: mentioned states, though, Scott. I know California, for instance, has mm-hmm. taken some pretty bold steps in nice. terms of privacy and data protection. Mm-hmm. What else should we be watching for? But they're in the not US? alone, right?
0: So you're referring to the new uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, which is coming into force next year. Um, and this isn't quite like GDPR for listeners who have been following developments in the European Union. This is the General Data Protection Regulation which you know, to oversimplify puts consumers very much in the driver's seat for how they want their personal information shared and utilized. Um, the CCPA in California isn't so much about controlling your data but it's at least a radical transparency statute so you know what's happening um, with it. It's an important point because by default if Congress doesn't act, um, that will become increasingly the default across the US. And there's already eight states that have various stages in considering similar legislation. And some have already passed. So Ohio is, for example, in the Midwest, not exactly a liberal bastion, um, already has a new law that, for example, if companies comply with various privacy and security frameworks, then they're given a liability shield after a data breach, right? So it's not the case that just because we have some aversion, particularly in the US Senate right now, to more comprehensive privacy or cybersecurity or election reform legislation, that things aren't happening. Uh, Because particularly at the state level, there's a lot of experimentation taking place.
1: To bring Angie in on this point, though, I know you've written a beautiful article with a very wonderful title of the consumer as Sisyphus, talking Mm -hmm. about the fact that transparency on data protection and privacy and consent sometimes can be a bit of a chimera because it's almost impossible for consumers to take active control of their data and of privacy because there's just we're just engaging with the digital world so much. Do you think that transparency and consent is the way to go
2: or are there more steps we need to take to protect and secure data? So I'm very much... Thank you for the compliment first. Um, That's one of my favourite articles. It's a great title. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Um, And I, I think it does very much represent what the consumers will be facing if they don't already feel the burden of facing these nonstop... Um, need to understand the new rules. And this, of course, is what happened when the EU did the cookie announcements and suddenly you had to make a gazillion clicks that we were okay with cookies. For those who are thinking cookies and biscuits, what what is the cookies? cookies So uh, (laughs) technology-driven cookies. Uh, These are the things that track
1: you and know where you've been and what you've done on the internet, right? Okay. Yes.
2: So and so that legislation forced a lot of consumers and, and just the casual uh, business people as well to to click and not really think about it. So we do have some pretty reasonable research that suggests that it only takes a few clicks for us to continue to pay attention, and that what we in general and I am a cynic find, is that then what happens is new terms get slipped in. And so you don't even realize you're actually clicking something that's slightly different. And so I am not a massive proponent of transparency and consent uh, as a fundamental way to control privacy or data management. Mm -hmm. I do think we need to start rethinking about how we design. And we need the, the designers of these different systems to understand and to be better educated and we as researchers need to do a better job of getting the community to actually tell us what privacy means to you. So we need to be careful that we don't engage in these academic conversations of privacy means I have to have control of all my data because the numbers just do not um, in any way support that. But there are key bits of it. And in those instances then I suggest there has to be, um, there's a lot of different sort of vogue terms for it. So I I certainly don't want to advance any of those necessarily. But uh, I do think we need to take a new design approach that understands how a human interacts with the technology and recognizes how that entire process.
1: So it's interesting. I'm I'm imagining some of our listeners might be thinking, oh, privacy, this is a consumer protection. This is a human Mm -hmm. rights issue. Why is a national Mm -hmm. security podcast talking about privacy? One of the interesting things about data and privacy protection is that increasingly, it's kind of also very much about national security. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking in particular about the so-called global AI race uh, data powers that and consumer data often powers that. And we also often see states sponsoring hacks or indeed hacking themselves to steal consumer data. Allegedly, China was behind the hack of, of the Marriott, maybe even the hack of Equifax, which is a big uh, credit reporting agency. Why is data so important to, or is it so important to this global AI race? Is the global AI race framing even really legitimate way to be thinking about this? Uh, What's what's the view in the room on that?
2: So AI is um, sort of this global term that actually needs to be divided more narrowly. And so, most of what the the average person would think of as AI is probably closer to either automation or machine learning. Or Hal, the killer robot? Yeah, space <laughs> yeah. Odyssey. Did, yes, <laughs> another favorite Good article. Morning, Thank man. you very much. Um, and so the uh, so that's how data feeds The algorithms that stand behind the machine learning is that it learns by the data that it gathers. And so the more data you feed into it, the better it is able to detect patterns and then build the next series of questions that it responds to. Automation is actually very similar, despite the fact it doesn't necessarily learn. It's the programmer that learns and then automates based on the data that is fed into it. So we know most people do X, and I'm a programmer and I see that, and then I make an automatic function or an automatic choice. So data drives the d- the way the design is functioned in both of those systems. And um, so there's, there's concerns with that, obviously. So the race is to have enough data that you can build these very knowledgeable um, machine learning programs. And we're um, seeing that surface, for instance, in the
1: US-China trade talks at the moment. I know that data localization is a sticking point. China wants to keep data, particularly even consumer data, inside China, uh, which can be beneficial to, for espionage purposes, for state surveillance purposes, perhaps but there's also an economic dimension as well and an economic meets ai meets security dimension where in your views is the, is the, is all of this going are we seeing countries closing their borders down is security going to trump economics and we're kind of going back to the idea of the Balkanized internet that was popular a couple of years ago then not popular and now popular again
0: yeah. It, it never really did go away, right? I think there was just a bit of a truce for a few years there. So listeners might remember that back in, in 2012, there was a conference to debate something very boring, these international telecommunication regulations. And at that point, there was a non-binding language inserted to this agreement that would have given states ostensibly some more control over their own domestic intranets, basically. Um, most of the world, including Australia and Western Europe and the US walked out of that meeting. They didn't vote for it. But that showed a, a pretty pretty sharp light on all the countries that did, which was the vast majority of the world, right? Um, So in the subsequent meetings, there was more consensus around basically the big tent approach we have right now. Hey, multi-stakeholder, let's have governments, let's have academia, civil society, businesses, all have a say in the way the internet's developed. That's the way it's worked for decades. And in some ways, it's boosted a lot of innovations, created a whole new industries. Um, But the other side of this debate has never went away. So uh, China, Russia, plenty of countries prefer this idea of cyber sovereignty, of these digital walled gardens of control, as you put it, right? That's for economic purposes. Look at all of the uh, really innovative tech companies that China has been able to incubate because of this policy, unlike Russia, for example, which does allow a lot of Western companies to come in and mine, for example, consumer data. Um, so there is a national security. There's an economic angle to that. And the interesting thing is now looking forward, particularly particularly with the U.S. a little bit more absent from a lot of these major internet governance discussions, um, who are the big proponents of the kind of the multi-stakeholder status quo that we've all grown up with, right? Because it's by no means the case that the internet in 2119 is going to look much like the internet in 2019. There's no reason that it can't be, you know, maybe not balkanized to the extent of 194 intranets, but we are headed to a world uh, because of the AI race, because of 5G, where there could be two different visions of the Internet. There could be a vision based on control, based on sovereignty, based on tracking people, not just within China but across a whole range of countries to which China is exporting some of these technologies and a freer version of the Internet among the rest of the world that's more comfortable with this cacophonous kind of multi-stakeholder status quo.
1: It's interesting, too, when we talk about data, we think ones and zeros economic benefit. But there's also the ability of data as information to be used as a tool of manipulation and narrative control. And in a post-2016 US election, Russian interference world, do you think that the US is as committed to the idea of the internet is kind of free and open as it was before 2016?
0: Well, when you read the National Cybersecurity Strategy of the U.S., which is only a matter of months old, it does still at least play lip service to an open, secure, interoperable, and free internet, right, to which we would think certain internet freedoms attach, like freedom of association and freedom of speech. Now, the extent to which we actually push that agenda worldwide is up for debate. But when you look at the actual policies coming out of the current administration, it's remarkably in line with what we saw from the Obama administration, for example. There hasn't been the sea change we've seen in other policy areas. In other words, when it comes to internet governance and cybersecurity. Now, you know, day in, day out, though, um, officials at a lot of levels just, just aren't as engaged, though, in these discussions. Um, so it's It would be really interesting to see what happens, for example, right now at the UN with the group of government experts, which has been an ongoing process of now 15-plus nations talking about, for example, how international law should apply to cyberspace, right? So we'll know more. Uh, The last time we tried this in 2017, that whole thing fell apart. We could not agree. Um, So if we can this time around, that would be a very positive step forward. Um, But time will tell.
1: Certainly when uh, your Vice President Mike Pence was in our neck of the woods late last year, he reiterated the free and open commitment to the internet and at the particular summit he was at got one of the biggest rounds of applauses um, of his speech, I understand. So, yes, certainly it's still there in the policy. You have to question, though, whether or not... We might see that change in the future, Mm -hmm. uh, for better or worse, as more and more uh, countries use information operations and information manipulation as part of their defence and security strategies, on which point I guess it's a good time to turn to the Australian election, which you all have heard about. It's coming up next week. When we are talking about elections these days, we can't stop or can't help but talk about fake news as well. And just in the last couple of days, we've seen a lot of controversy over a particular app uh, that about two and a half million people use in Australia, which is WeChat. It's owned by Tencent, one of those great Chinese companies you were talking about before, Scott. There's allegations from both parties that there is fake news circulating on that uh, uh, chat app. The Labor Party says that there are malicious rumours, maybe even circulated originally by Liberal Party sources, while just this morning it's come out that perhaps Chinese media has been, uh, quote unquote, mocking Australia and the Prime Minister in WeChat posts. What is your take on the extent to which we should be worried about, one, a Chinese company's app in Australia and in the public discourse? And two, this broader question of disinformation, fake
2: news, however it is you want to put that point. I can comment. Um, The first thing that I think it's important that we don't impose or always assume that certain conversations are new merely because technology is the, the, the main medium that it's traveling through. And so, you know, one of my favorite institutes um, to walk around is, of course, uh, in the UK, which has a very famous uh, Winston Churchill goose in front of it. And it, it talks very much about the idea that misinformation is actually part and parcel of how a state behaves at times. And whether or not that is something we want to accept is something we should question. So please don't misunderstand, I'm not necessarily supporting that. It is, however, the case that it is not new that other entities share misinformation. We have t- tons of examples throughout history, and, the, and I frequently say, I wonder if we're asking technology to do a bit too much. And so We have seen responses from several states to misinformation that may or may not have influenced Brexit, for example, uh, the Brexit-based election. Um, where now they're trying to create a resilient uh, citizenry who understands and can better identify when fake news is present, has a little bit more of a critical eye, and is not necessarily um, in sort of the technology-driven biased world that just assumes whatever is spit out from something that I can Google search is necessarily true. And the teaching, in my opinion, this is not the end of the conversation, but we certainly need to get people to begin to realize that the Internet is not like picking up the New York Times, that we are not still in the days where there is a gatekeeper for certain types of information, that it is actually a Google search away, which allows anyone to, quite frankly, even mimic parts of the New York Times, one would assume.
3: Um, adding to that, um, so the idea that we can make citizens better critical thinkers and um, better able to assess what's real and what's not real, um, the great challenge to that now and what I think fundamentally changes um, this point in time um, fr- or distinguishes this point in time from um, pa- the past is that with data aggregation and um, personalization, these um, bad actors are able to predict and manipulate user behavior. So not only can they put in the um, fake information, they know how to best spread it. Um, So they can design the information and how it is presented to Um, you know, get the most shares to get more people to click. And that is where I think things are different. Because, yes, I agree that uh, we used to have better gatekeeping functions with the kind of the ideals of journalism. But now because the misinformation can spread so rapidly because of the Power of data aggregation. Um, I think that is truly a terrifying and um, growing in potential um, to further terrify us and change the the tenor of the conversation.
1: I want to come back in a moment to that, I, that, the terror that you have about mass manipulation. But I also want to ask you, Abby, I know you teach a subject on critical thinking and you are a self-described millennial prof. You, you blog at a website, millennialprof.com, I think. Mm-hmm. What do you teach your students and in particular the younger generation about how to be a better critical thinker in this age of mass manipulation and data aggregation?
3: Yeah, I think um, not only teaching our young people to be better and more informed citizens about how our democracy is ideally supposed to work, which um, is surprising in the U.S., we have a severe lack of civics education, particularly in secondary schools. Um, so not only trying to create that baseline knowledge set, but with critical thinking, I try to um, teach students the behavioral science where our um, Kind of thought processes might be tricked. Um, you know, if you look at Daniel, we'll or Con- gently nudge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Cass Sunstein, and then which is very much supported by um, Daniel Kahneman's work in terms of figuring out what's the easy kind of uh, decision or System One thinking, where it's just kind of like instinctual, and then the more deliberate thinking that uh, moves us into System Two. And so, with students and trying to make them better at assessing fake news so that they can see how um, information might be presented so they can see how it uh, could potentially play into those um, cognitive mistakes. So nudging people towards using their
1: system to deliberative thinking is one way to prevent or perhaps be more resilient to the scourge of fake news and disinformation, whether or not that originates from within our own political system or is coming at us from external actors.
3: Yes. um, But what is particularly challenging, I think, is we only teach um, certain students those skills and, you know, um, students have to choose to take my class. Um, And so we have a very small segment of the population that's getting kind of that education. And I know um, in the United States, we have many people that don't have access to um, quality education. So that will continue to perpetuate um, the negative effects of manipulation. It's possible the Australian
1: Electoral Commission
3: has taken some heed
1: from your work and others. They've got an ad campaign at the moment where they encourage people uh, to check the source of political advertising, which I think perhaps is is doing exactly what you're suggesting, getting people to to stop, take a breath a little bit and think critically about who's saying the messages that they've seen. And I think there's another great Swedish, I think it's a Swedish one. Swedes always have good things. If it makes you angry or it makes you really happy, do a double take and check it, which I think, you know, these, these types of public advertising and messaging campaigns, do they work?
3: Yeah. And I, to add to that, um, so we have this um, kind of social organizations, nonprofit, uh, Snoops. I don't actually know if it is um, nonprofit, but it serves a great public uh, service of, so snoops.com. detecting what is a fake story and what is a real story. Um, And so I would ideally love to see a government organization fact check for citizens so they can easily figure out um, what is good information, what is bad. But the problem with that, and sorry, I'm such a Debbie Downer, is that there's a lot of mistrust in government news. Um, So depending on which political party in the U.S. is in control, there will be a lot of skepticism by the opposite party. Um, And so to trust the government's kind of take on what is real and what's fake is uh, going to be a challenge, particularly in the U.S. under this administration.
1: (laughs) That's a good bridge to zoom out our lens, uh, again, a little bit to this broader question of the global information wars and and information uh, contest, because you mentioned the idea of fact-checking. In Australia, the ABC, our public broadcaster, does do fact-checking. Now, interestingly, the ABC also was recently banned from... uh, platforms in China, uh, allegedly because its reporting was too, quote unquote, aggressive towards China. So when we live in a world where Chinese government messages can freely enter the internet and the cyberspace within Australia, but when media from Australia find it difficult to enter the Chinese market, how should we be thinking about that, that lack of balance? And should we be trying to do something to push back a little bit? Or is it dangerous to push back into an authoritarian regime like China with our own information
0: messages? Well, it, it is happening, right? So in the EU right now, there is a joint you know, sanctions regime that's being discussed to go right after disinformation campaigns, looking ahead to their European parliamentary elections coming up this summer. Similarly, in the US, during the midterms last fall, uh, for the first time, at least publicly, the U.S. went after a Russian troll farm, right? Offensively on election day to shut that down. I think looking ahead to the cycle coming up next year, we're going to see a lot more of those. They're, they're technical
1: measures, though, right? You can shut down a troll farm mm-hmm. by taking a technical um, action in cyberspace. Mm-hmm. Is that a bit different to pushing a counter narrative or or push or opening up the information domain inside Russia or China to let either state-sanctioned messages or indeed just local messages bubble to the top. Is that, is that a bridge too far?
0: I think it's just one component of an all-the-above approach to this. So pushing back technically, sure. Um, collective sanctions, if that doesn't work, sure. Um, K-12 through or primary school education on basic cyber hygiene and being able to spot these disinformation campaigns likes being rolled out now in Finland and Sweden, and Italy, even the UK. That is a part of this as well. Um, so there's, there's not going to be one, you know, panacea or a magic bullet here to, to get a handle on all aspects of this problem. Um, But, you know, I think there's a lot that can be done, uh, and some of which is being done, which is great. One thing in particular I think we need to do a much better job of is international information sharing between democracies, right? Because we're all facing common threats, whether they come from Internet platforms or authoritarian governments. Um, And there's a lot of cybersecurity best practices um, that we can teach one another. One of the big projects that our students who are here with us now are working on, we're looking at small Pacific Island nations and seeing how they're dealing with some of these same challenges. Um, so, you know, pushing information out to not only other advanced democracies, but also emerging and in some cases relatively fragile democracies, I think is is imperative and is an important part about entering a world that we can be happy with and that our kids can be happy with.
1: You have a sense of what the escalation dynamic looks like, though, if you're saying kind of all options on the table, cyber information, um, et cetera. Do we – should we be thinking carefully about what that looks like and how it might be perceived by other countries?
0: It's a recipe for instability, absolutely.
2: Is it unavoidable? Is it kind of the recipe that we have to have? I would argue that one of the new things that the mass introduction of technology everywhere from our pockets to our wrists has, has done is pushed us to think of responses in a much quicker way. And historically, you know, lawyers, it's all sitting here, would say that you know something happens, and then we take this very proactive, but also type responsive sort of long process to to push regulation. And with the widespread use of technology and and the different attacks that can happen, it's sort of like whack a mole. And until we get a little more comfortable with having to whack the mole and then look for the next threat and continually come up with the new idea of of how to how to uh, uh, take on this attack. Um, we're going to feel very uncomfortable as a society because we are going to feel like we're constantly under attack. And In theory, that's true, but we need to be careful how we're d- defining attack. Um, and One of the ways, in my opinion, that we, we do uh, improve that dampening of that fear is to have a resilient citizenry who does have the tools in place to take away things that we know are more pervasive. But I do think there is an escalation element to it. Uh, it's a it's an it's a at least an uncomfortable place for me to be at. In the last week, we've seen multiple internet's shut down on election, around the elections. Um, I, I personally don't really think that's. First of all, I don't think you. Well, no, the numbers actually suggest people do decide on the way to the polls. Sort of sad. Um, but with that said, I, I'm not sure that's the right response. I don't think you'll see the United States ever literally shut down the internet because we have an election on that day and we want to just stop the spreading of misinformation. Um, because there's arguments against, that's the human rights argument, right? If I should be able to, to, to engage in this social community conversation that says, I was denied the right to vote. And this is fundamental. So shutting down the internet stops that discourse. But to me, that's an ultimate level of, ex, you know, of that escalation response. So I fear any time we, we take the approach of shutting something out or using a sledgehammer to, to push our way in, that that will ever lead us to a place that we, where we really want to be for very long. So we're in an age of whack-a-mole instability. We've got <laughs> d- d- distress
1: yeah. over here about the platform power and the mass manipulation. We're really quite an optimistic bunch. Um, <laughs> I know we're, we're short on time and I do want to ask one final question and I'm not sure it will raise the tone of, of, of optimism. We're talking a lot about the kind of information aspect of, of cyber power. I want to take us back now to the hard pointy edge of kinetic cyber attacks and and the, the the more wary aspects just this week we've seen uh, Israel the IDF in Israel uh, say on Twitter I believe they announced their action that they had uh, used a kinetic attack to take out the cyber uh, unit that Hamas uh, was going to use. Interestingly, I think it's, it's also to prevent a preemptive cyber strike, right? So it wasn't in retaliation for a cyber attack. It was a, out of fear that an attack was imminent. Scott, I know you do a lot of work on international law and cyberspace and norms. Is this something we should be watching uh, as a new development in responses to cyber attacks?
0: It is. It's something that's been theoretical for quite some time. Um, but it's it's an aspect that a lot of us have been paying close attention to after Stuxnet, right? How are states going to behave when they've been targeted? Um, the US, for example, still reserves the right even to use nuclear weapons potentially in response to a cyber attack. I hope we never do. Um, but everything is supposedly on the table. And now what we've seen is Maybe not crossing the Rubicon, but we're wading into it, right? We've seen a kinetic action in response to a cyber attack. As you say, preemptive at that, which means ideally it should be imminent and completely necessary, proportionate, of course. Um, So it comes down to the intelligence that was used, for example, to justify this, but it also shines a harsh light and sets a pretty important precedent for other countries that have been attacked. Now, in the best case scenario, that could mean that countries that are sponsors of these types of attacks might think twice because they might not only openly open themselves up for having their troll farms shut down, um, but also – Potentially up to and including missile strikes, right? Now, it's important to keep in mind a few things here, though. Um, One, sure, we've been talking lots about countries, and, of course, that's really important in national security circles. But as your listeners know, um, there are many very important cyber powers that are not nation states. Right. Uh, Criminal organizations, terrorist groups, even a lot of companies, frankly, have an tremendous amount of cyber expertise. So there's a really interesting debate that needs to be happening much more publicly about when and under what circumstances we should be attributing these attacks back to governments. Right. Um, Sometimes it's a very thin veil if you're guardians of peace in North Korea. Um, Other times it's pretty murky. And under international law, we have not settled on a burden of proof that we should be using. We're 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 basically naming and shaming cyber attackers a lot more for political reasons, but we, at least the U.S. government, hasn't come forward and said, and this is the standard of proof we think should be justified before taking some type of preemptive military action. So, you know, what Israel did, you know, uh, whether it's justified or not, is putting the cart before the horse just a little bit there, and I think it's it's going to— put, especially in national security circles, um, a lot of emphasis on dealing with, I hope, some of these fundamental questions that we still haven't answered.
1: I suppose the context should also be looked into, uh, should also be looked at the fact that there's ongoing hostilities, right, between Israel and and Hamas, a bit different to even North Korea and the US. Uh, So... It is, you know, I agree. We haven't possibly crossed the Rubicon, but mm-hmm. we are certainly wading in, as mm-hmm. we have been, I suppose, for almost a decade now in these issues.
0: No, that's it. That's it. I mean, hybrid warfare is. I think, yeah, this this shines just yet another data point on the fact that that's going to be the wave of the future, right? We're not going to see a pure cyber war, very likely. We all live in glass houses, um, but the the use of cyber and kinetic together, whether it was in Georgia, whether it was in, in um, Ukraine, or what's happening now in Israel and with Hamas. I mean, this just, I think, just this. Just shows the future so we have to prepare for it now
1: well this has been a fascinating conversation my my take-homes are somewhat negative but also there's, there's some lights of positivity in that you know cyber is here to stay as a weapon information warfare is here to stay as a weapon and we're kind of in a perpetual state of hybridity if I can use such a wonky term But also that the threats to our democracy don't just come from without, they also come from within, which sounds scary, but it also empowers us as the citizens and as lawyers to use tools that we have, like regulation, to push back a little bit. So with that, that's uh, all we have time for on this podcast. You can, if you are listening, join the conversation, though, by going to Twitter. We're Apps Policy Forum on Facebook. uh, You can find us there as well. And also you can uh, reach us via email at podcast at policyforum.net. We'd love to hear from you. You can hear us uh, very soon again uh, when next time we do an episode of the National Security Podcast.